You're listening to a sermon series by Grace City Church, a church plant in Green Square in Sydney. For more information about us, visit gracecity.com.au. Well, g'day there. It's great to be with you. My name is Tim, and I got the privilege of just spending a little bit of time working through that verse with you. Um, As we jump in, I reckon one of the favourite things of mine about the Bible uh, is the variety of different images, pictures, metaphors it uses to describe and help us to understand what it is that God has accomplished in the gospel, by which I mean the salvation of people like you and I. And so uh, one image by way of example, uh, one way the Bible describes Christians is that they've been washed and so it's an image taken from the concept of sin as defilement, or if you like, you know, a staining of the soul, and it has its roots in the Old Testament. So under the Old Covenant, uh, God's people, the Jews, there were a variety of ways that they could become ceremonially unclean. And as a result of that, they were excluded from the community as well as excluded from worshipping God in the temple. Now, it wasn't a permanent thing. It often wasn't even a moral thing, by which I mean there were certain things you could do which weren't sinful, but you sort of became ceremonially unclean. And so before someone could be welcomed back into the community and allowed back into the temple to worship God, uh, they had to undergo a time of purification and a series of, if you like, uh, ceremonial cleansing rituals. The thing is, by the time you get to the New Testament, what you learn is that Actually, a large part of what that was about was really laying, if we can call it, the the conceptual framework to help us understand part of what Jesus accomplishes at the cross. See, the Bible says, in Christ, Christians have been washed clean from their sins and are, if you like, welcomed back into uh, relationship with God. It's also... uh, what we're going to enact later on when we baptize people, right? What we're enacting is a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. Christians have been washed. So that's one uh, little picture, if you like. Uh, Another picture is the way that the Bible describes Christians as those who've been justified. Uh, This is an image taken from the concept of sin as law-breaking, and it has its roots in the Roman law courts. And so... Uh, when a judge declared someone to be righteous or not guilty and free from any crime, it was described as an act of justification. And so as a result of that, the defendant was cleared of all charges and they could walk free free from any fear of condemnation. According to the Bible, that is what happens when somebody trusts in Jesus. Uh, God the judge declares them to be righteous or not guilty or justified. And so as a result, believers can walk free without fear of condemnation. It's another image. A third image, and the one I want to spend the bulk of our time exploring this morning, is uh, the way that the Bible describes Christians as being adopted. Uh, And you can kind of tell from the language, it it takes its idea or its roots from the world of the family. See, in Roman law, if someone wanted an heir and someone to carry on the family name, either because they didn't have kids or because the kids they did have, they didn't really want to carry on the name, as in they weren't considered worthy, so just watch out, otherwise your parents disown you. Um, What you might do is choose to adopt a male as the son or heir. Now, it was a male because in that culture, the women, the females, wouldn't inherit, so it had to be the man. Uh, Now, what they wouldn't do, though, so common today is you adopt a little infant or a child. 
Back then, it was far more common not to adopt an infant, but uh, a young adult male who'd sort of almost proved themselves, that had promised the kind of person you would actually want to carry on the family name and inherit the wealth. Now, as we will see, that there are some important differences between adoption in Roman law and uh, the kind of idea that the Bible is talking about with adoption. But what Paul does is, is take that image and apply it to the believer. In other words, he says that when someone trusts in Christ, they've not only been washed by God, uh, justified by God, declared righteous, they've also been adopted by God, that is, welcomed into the family. Uh, I just want you to take a moment to let that sit in, sink in. Uh, if you trust in Christ, you're an adopted child of God. Uh, J.I. Packer, the English-born theologian, describes this as the highest privilege of the Christian life. In other words, nothing should be sweeter to us than having God as our Father and Jesus as our brother. Now, it could be, you say, well, hang on, what do you mean, what do you mean that only Christians are God's children? Isn't, isn't kind of everyone, aren't all human beings God's children? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? The short answer is that, to that is, is not really. By which I mean, the, the closest thing you will get to that kind of language in the Bible is something that the Apostle Paul says, says in Acts 17. So the context, he's preaching to the Athenians in the city of Athens. They're a bunch of idol-worshipping pagans, and he's trying to convince them or convert them to Christianity. And so the way he does it is by actually quoting from one of their philosophers. Uh, I'll read it for you. It says, For in God, so this is Acts 17, for in him, that is God, we live and move and have our being. And then he quotes and says, As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now you might look at that and say, Well, yeah, that kind of teaches we're all God's children. Not, not quite. Again, that word offspring sort of more has the sense of ancestral stock or just, if you like, descendant. But again, the main reason he's doing it is to convince these Athenians, Hey, hey guys, if even... If even your poets think that we're descended from God, then why are you worshipping idols? Things that human beings have created, things made of you know, stone and silver and gold. And so again, the idea that we're all children of God just isn't in the Bible. Instead, the teaching of the Bible is that being a child of God is a unique privilege for those who trust in Christ. And so you get a sense of this in John 1. John writes, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Our children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. I'll say it again. If you trust in Christ, then you have the remarkable privilege of being a child of God. A son or daughter of the Heavenly Father and a sibling of the Saviour. And what's more, a significant part of what we want to do today is just take a moment to celebrate the fact that God's family's gotten bigger, if you like. Uh, Grace City, we've got new brothers and sisters in the family. And so today, part of what we want to do is just take a moment to almost ceremonially, formally, welcome them into the family uh, with baptism. 
Before we do that, uh, what we want to do, what I want to do is uh, just work through the passage that we have read out for us before and give you five beautiful truths about adoption. Five beautiful truths about our adoption in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to read it for you and then let's go through. Here's our passage. Galatians 4, 4 4-7. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Five beautiful truths about our adoption. Number one, it is planned. Number one, it's planned. Notice how Paul begins, but when the set time had fully come. Uh, He speaks of a set time. Now, I don't know about you, uh, I set an alarm every now and again. Uh, I try to go for a surf before work a couple of times a week. Now, normally, I don't need to set an alarm uh, on a normal weekday, if you like, because my kids will wake me up before I need to go to work. But on a surf morning, I need to set a time. Uh, the night before, I will set an alarm so that it goes off before the kids wake up so I can go to the surf and then still get to work on time. I set a time. Paul's language seems to imply that God has done a similar thing. He set a time. He set an alarm, which when it goes off, begins a series of events that climaxes or that that culminates in our adoption. I don't know if you noticed the progression of the logic in the verse. I'll I'll pull it up for you again. I've I've stripped out one or two of the qualifying statements, uh, but I just want you to see sort of the progression of the logic. He begins, but when the set time had fully come, what happened when that set time came? Well, God sent his son. Okay, why did he send his son? To redeem those under the law. Okay, why did he want to redeem them? That we might receive adoption to sonship. Again, the set time climaxes in our adoption. But here's the question I want you to consider. When did God set the time? I don't mean when did the alarm go off. That part's obvious because when the alarm goes off, God sends the sun. So the alarm goes off just before Jesus turns up in our world. I'm asking when did he set the time? When did he actually set the alarm? When did God think to himself, you know what? I reckon we should adopt some kids. Well, we don't get the answer in this passage, but you do get it somewhere else. And so let me just quickly take you to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, it's a little wordy, but stick with me. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. Paul says, For he that is God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now, there's a lot in there, Uh, and today at least, I don't want to get tripped up over the the language of predestination. I just want you to notice when it was that God set the time before the creation of the world. See, when a child is adopted these days, uh, the first time that child is usually aware of it, there's differences, but usually aware of it is when sort of the parents show up to take them home into the family. But it's usually pretty different for the family, for the parents. 
Uh, in most cases, uh, the parents have been thinking about and planning it for years, right? They've spent hours with the adoption agency, they've done the adoption courses, they've spent time preparing the room. This kid has been in their heart for years. Uh, Paul says, if you're a child of God, you've been in his heart for years. In other words, before the creation of the world, uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit came up with a plan to bring you into the divine love. Uh, not just as a slave or as a hired hand, but as a child of God. Grace City, if you trust in Christ, that may be a relatively new thing for you. Maybe years, weeks, perhaps even days old. But it's not a new thing for God. Uh, you have been... A photo of you has been on the fridge door of heaven since before the creation of the world. Your adoption has been planned. Number one, it was planned. Number two, it was costly. It was costly. If I bring back this slide for a moment, there's another word I want to draw your attention to. Paul says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. Why? To redeem. To redeem. That's another picture. It's another word picture, another metaphor to describe what God has done. You see, we've had washed, we've had justified, we've had adopted, now we've got redemption. What does redeemed mean? Well, it's a word that comes from the ancient practice of purchasing the freedom of either a slave or a prisoner of war. And so in ancient times, if one nation or one group went to war against another, the victor would basically do a loop and, um, of, the, of the battlefield and take anyone who wasn't dead as a slave. The thing is, every now and again, uh, one of the captives would be particularly wealthy and maybe they weren't going to be all that much use as a slave. Or perhaps they were actually going to be more valuable if you tried to sell that person, that captive, back to the nation from which they came. And so the victors would let it be known, this person is available for sale for the right price. Uh, that whole process was called redemption. The person who buys back the captive is the redeemer, the person who's bought is the redeemed, and the price is the ransom. But with that in mind, just come back and notice what Paul tells us. Right, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son to redeem. Right, when the alarm went off, God sent his son into the world with a mission to buy back captives, to set us free from slavery to sin and death and to liberate us from captivity in hell. Now, just on that, I think it's, it's important that we remember we're not just victims here. You know, sometimes we can almost fool ourselves into thinking, oh, yeah, we've been on Team God the whole time and really what happened is that in a particularly... Uh, you know, fierce moment of the battle, the enemies sort of overtook us, they took us captive, and we've been trying to get back ever since. The Bible says, no, 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 it's not like that. Uh, it, it's more like we've defected. In, in other words, by nature and choice, each of us have actually at some point in our life and then in an ongoing way uh, sided with the enemy, turned our back on God and said, no thanks. 
And so we're, we're not just captives, we're also traders. But the Bible says God wants us back. He wants us back. Why? Uh, well, for some unknown reason, we've had a place in his heart since before the foundation of the world. He's had our photo on his fridge for years. But suppose we ask, well, okay, what was the price? Remember, there's always a price. Redemption is about setting someone free through the purchase. So what was the price? How much was God willing to pay to redeem people like you and I? Uh, well, again, we don't get the answer from Galatians, but we do get it from something the Apostle Peter says. So let me just read to you. 1 Peter 1.18. Peter says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. When parents adopt a child these days, uh, they usually have to pay a price. Uh, if it's a local adoption, uh, it's a couple of thousand dollars at the very least in uh, department legal fees as if it's an international adoption, there's obviously agency fees, there's flights back and forth, there's um, often a donation to the orphanage. So it's, whether it's local or international, it's an expensive process. But as costly as it may be for us, it's nothing compared to the price that God was willing to pay for people like you and I. The purchase price of our redemption was nothing less than the precious blood of God's only Son. It was costly. It was costly. Third, it's legal. It's legal. Uh, pull it up again. As we've been working through these verses, uh, you might have found yourself wondering, why does Paul use the language of adoption to sonship in particular, rather than something slightly more gender inclusive, you know, like sons and daughters? And it's a fair question, uh, particularly since the version of the Bible we're using, it's the NIV, the New International Version, it usually does use the gender-inclusive version. And so even in our passage, actually, if you go down to verse 7, you'll notice it speaks of children or a child. Um, in the original, it's just sons, but it's gone the gender-inclusive option there. So why didn't it do it here? Why does it talk about adoption to sonship? Well, it has to do with the particular word that is being translated here. See, it's one word translated into three, uh, but it's a legal word in the original. And it has the sense of full legal standing of an adopted male heir in Roman culture. That's what that word adopted to sonship means. And so uh, you've got to remember, this is, these are the days when a Roman noble... Uh, might have had an illegitimate child or two through a household servant. And so, yes, while these children may have uh, grown up in the father's homestead, they weren't his legal heirs. Uh, if anything, they were second-class citizens, and often they were also just a bit of an embarrassment. When Paul uses that word, adopted to sonship, he's trying to make it clear that when God adopts us into his family, his intention is not to bring us in as second-class citizens. Uh, his intention is not to bring us in as servants who hang out in the slave quarters, but no more. 
He's bringing us in as sons, as those with the full legal standing of an adopted male heir. That's the picture he's supposed to get. The other thing to say on this is that while it is definitely legal, it's not just a legal fiction. See, look at how Paul carries on in verse 6. So he uses the legal word, but then he goes on and says, and because you are sons, almost, this is not just paper in heaven that's been signed. Actually, you are sons, says Paul. Now, we'll carry on with verse 6 in a moment, but I think those four or five words are beautiful in part just because it goes against the grain of how many of us think about the status of adopted kids. See, uh, in his book, Adopted for Life, Russell Moore tells the story of uh, showing their friends and family the two or two photos. And in each photo is a different little baby, one-year-old Russian boy that he and his wife were about to go and welcome into their family, travel to Russia. Uh, the Russian court had just approved the adoption. They just declared these boys to be legally theirs. And so they're about to fly over and bring them home. And so the question that everyone asked when they looked at these cute little boys in the photos was, are they brothers? Now, um, as I said, the boys are both about one year old. Um, and they're adopting both of them. So it's a natural question. You know, people are kind of wondering, are they twins? What's... But have a listen to how Russell Moore says he answers the question. So, for example, when one lady asked him, are they brothers? He responds with, they are now. And then when she says, yeah, I know, but like, are they really brothers? He said, yes, now they're both our children. And so now they're really brothers. In the end, she just rolls her eyes and says, oh, you know what I mean. He goes on to explain, yeah, of course, he did know what she meant. But by responding that way, he's trying to challenge the underlying presupposition that for them to be really brothers, they needed to share the same DNA. Which, as it turns out, they didn't. But through the adoption, they have become brothers. And so now they really are his sons. Uh, later in the book, he says, on occasion, uh, when he'd meet people and they'd learn that his two boys were adopted, they'd say something to the effect of, oh, you know, that's lovely. And do you have any children of your own? And again, you know what they mean. But I can't help but wonder whether it exposes a massive flaw in how we think about the status of adopted kids. Look again at verse 6. Because you are his sons. Adoption isn't just a legal fiction. Can you imagine uh, right now, God the Father in heaven looking down on our little gathering here of his children gathered together, smiling, and then one of the angels sidling up to God and saying, So God, do you have any children of your own? At Grace City, hear the words again. You are his sons and daughters. And he paid the price of his son's blood to redeem you. And so if you trust in Christ, you have a place in his heart and a place in his house. It's legal. Next. Uh, 
It's also personal. It's personal. Uh, Take a look with me at verse 6. Paul says, Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now, one of the interesting things about this verse is that that word, Abba. Uh, I suspect if you've been around for church for any length of time, you will have been told that that word, Abba, means uh, it's kind of the ancient equivalent of Daddy. It's a particularly intimate address. Now, truth is, I thought that for a long time too. I'm probably even told people that. Uh, But I looked it up this week and it's almost certainly not true. So sorry about that. Uh, It turns out Abba is really just the Aramaic form of father. Just a different word, different language. But it raises the question, okay, well, why then does Paul use the word father twice? So he's writing in Greek, so father appears once in Greek. Then it appears a second time in the Aramaic, Abba. Why does he do it twice? Well, uh, the answer is that Abba, or Father, is how Jesus addressed God. See, for people growing up uh, in Australia, or at least if you've grown up in a culture that is vaguely familiar with the influence of Christianity, the idea of God as a Father won't be particularly new to you. It won't be shocking. You've sort of grown up with it. Uh, But you've got to remember that people in Jesus' day... No one else in Jewish culture, almost no one else, ever referred to God as Father. He was always Yahweh, or He was Lord, or He was Almighty. But for Jesus, and particularly when He prayed, He was Father. Or in the language that Jesus spoke, Aramaic, Abba. And so it seems, therefore, that the intimacy of that address, Father, Abba, so stuck with the disciples that they kept the word Abba almost as a remnant, a precious remnant of the voice of Jesus in his own language. But how does that help us understand what Paul's saying? Well, let's go back to it. Paul says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son, that is the spirit of Jesus, his son, into our hearts. And it's that spirit who calls out Abba Father. See, even though God uh, set the alarm before the creation of the world and then sent his son to secure redemption 2,000 years ago at the cross, it's not like people like you and I today remain unaffected, as if it's all just something that happened in the past. God signed some documents in a court in heaven somewhere. and, and Something happens for you also when you trust in Christ. What is it? Well, God takes you, puts the spirit of his son inside you, and that is the spirit that instinctively cries out to him, not as master, not as judge, not as creator, but as father, just like Jesus instinctively called out, Father, Abba. Uh, In his commentary on this verse, John Stott writes this. He says, God sent his son that we might have the status of sonship. And he sent his spirit that we might have an experience of it. This comes through the affectionate, confidential intimacy of our access to God in prayer, 
in which we find ourselves assuming the attitude and using the language not of slaves, but of sons. I'll say it again, throughout the Bible, God is described in many different ways. He is the Almighty, He is the Judge, He is the Creator, He is the Master. But for those with the Spirit of Christ, He is first and foremost, Father. Now I know uh, not all of us have had great fathers. But even for you who haven't, you have a sense of what your dad should have been. Now the promises of the Bible is that for those who trust in Christ, God is all that and more. He is your perfect heavenly Father. And so He invites you to call Him Father. And Jesus teaches us how to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. It's personal. Our adoption by God is personal. And then fifth and finally, it's glorious. It is oh so glorious. In verse 7, Paul goes on. It says, So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Uh, he says something very similar in Romans 8, so I'll just read that quickly as well. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, both passages are really getting at the same idea, which is that as God's children, we've, we're heirs of God and co-heirs with our brother, Jesus Christ. Now, as you know, an, an heir is one who stands to inherit the father's or the parent's estate. Given we're talking about God, we're talking about inheriting quite a lot here, aren't we? And so it's worth asking the question, what exactly does it mean to inherit? What, what exactly does the believer in Christ, the child of God, inherit from the Father? Well, in the context of both of the passages, they're talking specifically about um, uh, inheriting the new creation. Uh, this is particularly obvious if you keep reading in uh, the Romans passage, because when it speaks of sharing in his glory, it's talking about the glory of our resurrected bodies and the fact that uh, creation itself will one day, when Jesus returns, be liberated from its bondage to decay and then enjoy the freedom of the children of, and the glory of the children of God. See, I don't know, I don't know what you think the Christian hope is. What's the Christian hope? Uh, many people would say heaven. And it's, it's only kind of half right. See, what most people seem to assume is that heaven will be some kind of disembodied existence where we're hanging out in the clouds, uh, shooting Cupid's arrows at one another and playing harps. Uh, that's not heaven in the Bible. See, the Christian hope is, is far less that we would uh, leave earth and go to heaven and far more that one day God would bring heaven to earth. See, have a listen to Sri Lankan author Vinoth Ramachandra. He says, Our salvation lies not in escape from this world, but in the transformation of this world. You will not find hope for the world in any religion, system or philosophies of humankind. The biblical vision is unique. 
No faith holds out a promise of the eternal salvation for the world the way the cross and the resurrection of Jesus do. Grace City, that's the glory we stand to inherit. Uh, Not just the transformation of our bodies, though it is that. It's the transformation of the world. You know that bit, maybe you don't, I do. You know that bit in The Lion King? It's early on, uh, Simba's dad, Mufasa, takes him up onto Pride Rock and he kind of says, look out there. He kind of says, everything the light touches is our kingdom. That's pretty good, come on. Everything the light touches is our kingdom. And then he goes on and talks about the circle of life and then says, and one day it'll all be yours. Uh, There's a sense in which your heavenly father says the same thing to you. Everything the light touches is our kingdom. Uh, Next time you climb a mountain or sit on a beach or watch a sunset, just remember that everything the light touches is our kingdom. And one day it'll all be yours. But suppose that you, uh, like Simba, say, yeah, but what about that little shadowy place? If you know the movie, he's talking about the elephant graveyard. God doesn't respond as Mufasa does and say, you will never go there or you must never go there. Because the truth is you will, in a sense. We all end up in the grave. But the difference is that God in the person of Jesus Christ went there too. And not just to die, but to rise again and in so doing, chase out the shadow lands from his kingdom. And so I'll say it again, Grace City. Everything the light touches is our kingdom. And one day, it'll all be yours. That is the glorious inheritance of the children of God. You know what the best thing about it is? God will be there. God will be there. And so the, the contrast between a usual way you'd inherit and here is that you don't have to say farewell to a loved one in order to take possession of the inheritance. Instead, God will be waiting for you with arms open wide, ready to welcome you into a father's embrace. Let me close. Uh, The Bible, as we've seen, uh, uses all sorts of different images to describe and help us appreciate what God has accomplished in in the gospel. There's washed, justified, redeemed. I think adopted is hard to top. Why? Well, because it's planned. Uh, A picture of you has been on the Father's fridge since before the creation of the world. It's costly. He was willing to pay the precious blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to redeem you. It's also legal. You're not just in there as a second-class citizen. You have the standing of one who is to inherit. It's also personal. We have the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ by whom we cry out instinctively, Father. And it's glorious because we stand to inherit the world. Now, if you've never experienced God's adopting love, then maybe today is the day. Why why not become a Christian today? How would you do that? Well, repentance is important. Like I said before, we're not just victims. Uh, We have all, by nature and choice, turned our back on God and rejected Him. But despite that, God loves us and wants us in the family, so He sent His Son to die. 
place for people like you and I. So trust in Christ and join the family today. If you're not ready to do that, get along to explore when it's next running. You've already heard about it. It's a great way to figure out what would it look like to live as and to become a child of God. Why don't you join me? Let's pray together. Lord God and Heavenly Father, how precious is it to be able to address you as our Father, not just our judge, not just as our creator, not just as our master, but as a Father. Thank you that you are the perfect Father who sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in our place, to bring us into your family. Thank you also that today, we get to celebrate the adoption of your sons and daughters. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.